This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 17. One. Professor Cifuentes had been in the jungle for a week, and the animals were starting to get to him. They weren't bothering his project. They were either frightened or noncommittal about the work he and his archaeological team were doing. But all night, they kept him up, screeching and scrambling in the branches over his head, and small objects kept falling on his tent. In his midnight delirium, he imagined the monkeys were deliberately throwing these objects. He slept no more than three hours at a stretch, woke up feeling almost like he was coming down with a cold, and stretched his shaky hand toward the cup of coffee that Teresa Alarcon, his graduate assistant and the foreperson for the project, always seemed to have ready for him. Alarcon was cut out for the project in a crucial way that Professor Cifuentes was not. She was up before dawn, planning the day for the work crew, and went to sleep soon after dark. She claimed she slept better in her tent in the rainforest than she ever did in her apartment in Oaxaca. Before Professor Cifuentes had his cup of coffee, Alarcon's morning enthusiasm made a rage that he struggled to contain boil in him. Once the caffeine kicked in, he was merely grateful. The funding for this dig here in the rainforest on the border of Mexico and Guatemala was not limitless. They had only the summers to assemble the crew before Professor Cifuentes had to return to teaching during the school year. Every day mattered, and Alarcon was helping him make the most of it. Central American archaeologists had known about the site, nicknamed La Lagrima, the teardrop, due to the shape it made in the jungle in aerial photographs, for decades, but its small size and remote location had made it less than desirable for excavation. Even now, Cifuentes was a little unsure what drew his attention to La Lagrima in the first place. It was a couple of local stories, a hunch, a gut feeling. It had taken him days to get to the site. He questioned his own actions. But he and Alarcon, who'd been a first-year graduate student at the time, were rewarded. In the unexcavated walls, they had found sets of etched glyphs that seemed unique to La Lagrima, figures in stone that appeared nowhere else. It justified further research, even from a linguistic perspective. And now, three years later, their early explorations were yielding so much more, including an anomaly Cifuentes could not explain. Cifuentes was poring over a new set of glyphs on the eastern side of La Lagrima's small temple building when Alarcón tapped him on the shoulder. You need to see something, she said. What is it, he said. I don't know, she said. 
You need to see it. The room was in the back of a small apartment that, they guessed, once constituted a priest's quarters. Stone walls, stone ceiling, stone floor, all covered in glyphs. A slit in one wall allowed a beam of light, a breath of air, into the place. Wow, Cifuente said. Alacon nodded. How is this possible, Cifuente said. Because after a thousand years of abandonment, as the jungle turned the temple into a hill, the ball court into a grove, and all the other rooms in the house into caves for bats, warrens and dens for mammals and reptiles, nests for birds, sanctuaries for a thousand varieties of plants, this room was bare. It's like the Maya just left, Alarcon said. But why did nothing take their place? Cifuentes asked. What kept the jungle out? What was it? so afraid of. You make it sound so sinister, Alarcon said. He could hear in the tone of her voice that she was teasing him. You're right, he said. There's no need for drama. But something passed through him, a sense of dread. Something was wrong. The orb was dark, quiet, like the rest of the archives. Manchu looked upward at the vaulted ceilings, then lowered his gaze to the stacks. Now he let his eyes move from one member of his team to the next. Sal, Grace, Liam, Asante. The Vatican had drawn lines between them lately, sometimes forced them to draw lines amongst themselves. Yet they still kept coming back together, Manchu thought, this little family of his. By age and experience, he should be its father, he and Asante its leaders. He could never quite let them know just how much he was making it all up as he went along, how much he relied on them. Though, maybe he thought that's what all fathers did. So, what brings us here today, Liam said. I've been thinking about Hannah and her experiment, uh, doing some research, Asante said, trying to get ahead of her. By instinct, Manchu searched the faces of the people around him. His team, the assistants in the archives with an earshot. He was looking for those eyes, the sign that Hana was with them. He didn't see them and felt his nerves ease. What have you found? Manchu said. A pattern, Asante said. Well, maybe pattern is too strong a word, but at least a trend, a preference she seems to show in what she uses to conduct this experiment. Whatever it is. Put simply, all the magic she uses seems to be old. All the magic is always old and new again, Liam said. Don't start, Grace said. You hated those crusty team for Egypts as much as I did, Liam said. Grace nodded, even chuckled. Still, she said, shut up. I don't mean that the magic itself is old, Asante said. I mean that it's magic that has been here on Earth a long time. She uses cave paintings, the tooth of the wolf of Gubbio, the oracle bones, the magic she used here at the Vatican. Liam nodded. You're right. Even the Hydra she summoned seems kind of old school. Straight out of Greek myth, Asante said. There was nothing mythological about the inside of its throat, Grace said. True, Sal said. The point I'm trying to make, Asante said, is that if I'm right that Hannah prefers old magic, then we can perhaps anticipate where she will appear next, or add her off before she gets there. Liam's voice rose with excitement. There may be something to what you say, 
he said. I've been hearing a little chatter about an excavation in Central America. A few weirdos are excited about it. It's a site way out in the rainforest that they've always claimed is magical. You know, the sort of place where gringos pay a local who knows what they're doing to lead them out there so they can get high and watch the sunrise from the top of a temple and not get lost in the jungle. Sounds unpromising, Grace said. Well, except for the fact that there have always been a couple of local legends about the place being uh, way into another world, Liam said. That's not that unusual, Asante said. Right, Liam said. But now an archaeologist has led a team out there to do a little digging. Do you happen to know the archaeologist's name? Cifuentes. Ah, Asante said. My friend in Mexico told me about him. Said Cifuentes was coming back with pictures of some very interesting carvings, glyphs. Things no one's quite seen before. And you're saying that's the sort of thing Hannah's been interested in? Menchu said. He seems like it, doesn't it? Though it also sounds like a wild guess on our part, Sal said. I agree, Menchu said. I don't think we can get the authority to dispatch the team officially. Do you think it's good enough that a couple of us can just go? Asante said. Menchu sighed. This was what passed for Asante playing by the rules these days. True, she wasn't trying to break them. Not in this case. Still, he needed more convincing. If your guess is right, Menchu said. What do you think Hana is trying to do? Why only old magic? I don't know, Asante said, with a candor that Manchu found refreshing. Maybe it's what she's comfortable using? Uh, maybe the older magic works in a way the newer magic doesn't? Maybe it suggests some sort of change in our world or theirs that Hana is trying to work around. Or subvert, Liam said. Yes, Asante said. Maybe she wants things back to the way they were, somehow. Killing everyone in my church's parish was a very interesting way to express that, Manchu said. Asante looked at Manchu with compassion. I'm sorry, she said. I didn't mean to be so cavalier. I don't like her any more than you do, but she has some sort of plan, and apparently she feels strongly enough about it to justify doing some horrific things. Alongside some very banal things, Liam said. Maybe they're all the same to her, Grace said. God knows we've met plenty of deranged kooks who get too much magic on the brain and lose sight of their humanity, Menchu said. I was gonna say everything that matters, but yeah, that will do. But whatever her plan is, Asante said, it's possible that this dig in the jungle is part of the puzzle. Unless she doesn't know about it yet, Menchu said. She may not, Asante said. I suppose I'm asking if we can really tell the difference between getting a step ahead of her and leading her right to whatever she's looking for, Manchu said. Maybe we can and maybe we can't, Sal said. But speaking for myself, I'm getting tired of being surprised to find her. She's the demon behind the curtain in half the cases we've taken on lately. I'm ready to learn a few things to figure her out. If this is even a first step toward that, then count me in. All right, Asante said. I can contact Cifuentes and make arrangements. Arturo, she added gently, given where the site is, I think you need to go too. I know, he said. I don't want to, he thought. He didn't have to say it. He knew the rest of the team already understood.
Two. Through most of the flights, most of the connections, and the time waiting in airports, Manchu and Sal talked about nothing. Manchu could tell Sal was looking for an opening, a way to talk about where they were going and what it meant to him. At first, he was irritated. She already knew what had happened to him, his congregation, his town. What was there left to say? And taking the magic out of it, what Manchu had experienced was not special. So many people had lost so much in the Civil War, and it had changed them, too. Bent their lives into a shape they couldn't recognize and never wanted. Everyone had to live differently afterward. But he understood Sal's impulse. She was trying to be compassionate, and he respected that. He tolerated how she kept steering the conversation back to where they were going. What is Guatemalan food like? I hear it's beautiful there. I'm looking forward to seeing it. He took a deep breath every time. It's hearty, sometimes hot like Mexican food. We have chilies there you don't see outside the country. And yes, it is beautiful. I've never seen anywhere else quite like the highlands. He could sense her working him like a detective or a swindler setting up a long con. He wouldn't let her in. Until just two hours out from landing in Guatemala City, he realized Sal was worried about him. Not only because they were friends, but because she needed to know how much she could depend on him for the mission. She needed to know he was all there, 100%, like she always was for him. He picked a rare break in the conversation when they were talking about something other than Guatemala. Hey, look, he said, I won't deny that it's hard for me to come back. I wouldn't expect it to be easy, Sal said. The memories are still so vivid, and they always will be, Manchu said. I can't do anything about that but they won't distract me from what needs to be done here. He watched Sal relax a little. I'm worried about you apart from the mission, too, Sal said. You don't need to be, Menchu said. He had chosen those words with care. Anna's constant appearances were bothering him, gnawing at him. Apart from wanting to know why she had come back to haunt him, what she was planning now, her return was forcing him toward a reckoning with himself. Something was opening in him, a question was being asked. But he was telling the truth when he said that Sal didn't need to worry about it. He was the only one who could answer that question. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Piora is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Piora's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piora's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. 
VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. The airport in Guatemala City was new, gleaming like so many other airports all over the world. The only real difference was that it was so quiet. A small row of empty gates waiting for a volume of traffic that hadn't arrived yet but its polished floors were ready. Menchu and Sal waited a few hours in the air-conditioned silence for the Plain de Flores. On the flight, Menchu watched from the window as the sprawl of the capital turned into fields and towns nestled among dead volcanoes. Then the land dropped away beneath them, and there was almost unbroken rainforest as far as he could see. A road cut through the greenery. Now and again, a cluster of rooftops, small fields, that was it. They landed in the little airport near Flores at sundown. The plane's door opened and the heat fell on them. It was a weight, thick and heavy. They walked from the plane to the terminal. There you are, Perry said when he walked up to them outside the airport. And there you are. Munchu felt tired, and not from the flight. 
On the list of reunions he dreaded in Guatemala, Perry Brooks fell somewhere near the bottom. Perry had turned up so often on their recent missions that Manchu almost wanted to welcome him. For all his supernatural connotations and occult motives, he was a known, comfortable oddity. Sal was turning an impressive, furious shade of reddish purple. Our supposedly angelic friend, once more in our way. Perry shrugged. Only half an angel. Not even, I mean, we've been over this. What exactly are you doing here? I thought you might want some backup, Perry said. I have to ask how you knew we were coming, Menchu said. Perry just smiled. You can at least tell us how you got here, Sal said. Mm, I'm not gonna, Perry said. You don't have to be a brat about it, Sal said. I'm not being a brat, Perry said. I'm, never mind, Menchu said. Fine, Perry said. I just took an earlier flight. That doesn't answer my question. That's all the answer you're getting, Sal. I'm sorry. Father, Sal didn't finish the question. She didn't need to. Manchu saw the conflict in her. On the one hand, her brother remained an unknown commodity. On the other hand, he was family. You're here to help? Manchu asked. And when Perry said yes, Manchu believed him. They took a cab into Flores. On the way, out the dusty window, was the Guatemala Manchu remembered. Houses of cinder block and rebar painted in bright colors. Places that would fix your tires on the spot. Men sitting outside restaurants with fluorescent lights. He had never been to Flores as a kid, only heard about it. It was a vacation spot for people who had more money than his family or of anyone in the congregation he led later ever did. When do we get started, Perry said. Not tonight, Manchu said. We're too late to drive out to the rainforest. We'll go at dawn. We're supposed to meet Cifuentes where the road ends. Then he'll take us through the forest to the site. How long will that take? A couple days, Manchu said. He noted Sal's surprise. He's like that around here more often than you'd think. He turned to the driver and negotiated with him to pick them up the next morning, haggled them down to a fair price. He enjoyed that. It felt good to flex that muscle. He hadn't done it in a long time. The houses ended at a wall at the shore of a lake. The cab followed the road over a low, narrow bridge onto an island covered in houses. For some reason, the driver said, the water level of the lake was rising. No one was sure why. The road closest to the edge of the island was flooded in places, but one block away was higher and dry. The cab brought them to their hotel, a clean place with white tile floors and a laconic man behind the counter who seemed genuine in his happiness to see them. He showed them to their room. There were three beds in a row from the door to the window. I call window, Perry said. You have got to be kidding, Sal said. Nah, I am kidding, Perry said. He turned to Manchu. You first. I don't think I'm ready to sleep yet, Manchu said. If we're getting up at dawn, I am, Sal said. All right, Manchu said. I'll be quiet when I get back. It took Manchu only ten minutes to get to the other side of the island, which was much more lively than where their hotel was. Rows of restaurants, people outside right on the water. Boats pulled up to the wall at the edge of the ring road amid the last people who were still swimming that day. A gaggle of children still out. The sounds of Norteño music. He turned onto a quieter street and was just thinking about how nice it was to be back when he ran into her. She was a little boy, but she still had those eyes.
Why did Hannah have to possess children? I never thought I would see you back here again, Hannah said. It's thanks to you, Manchu said, though I think you know that already. This represents some new initiative on your part, doesn't it? Trying to get ahead? Manchu decided not to answer that. Learn to play the role you're assigned, Hannah said. The situation must be controlled. Our archivists use the word experiment lately to describe what you're doing, Manchu said. You have used it yourself. You think you're figuring me out? Anna said. You tell me, Manchu said. Do your job, Anna said. Otherwise we get mayhem. You don't think what you did to my town was mayhem? It served its purpose, Anna said. Would you care to tell me what that was? It's complicated, Anna said. And I hope I don't have to do it again. If you dare, you will do what exactly, Anna said. Get a child? That poor boy you've taken is already dead to you, Manchu said. And the day you stop using children as human shields is the day you learn what I'm capable of. I think you don't have that quite right, Anna said. When you see me in my true form, you will have already seen what I can do. All the same, Perry said. Using kids is a little dramatic, don't you think? And here I thought I was the theatrical one. He had just rounded the corner behind Manchu. The priest realized that Perry had been following him, maybe looking out for him. Anna's anger contorted her child host's face a little beyond what it was capable of. Something popped in the child's jaw. Manchu could hear it. You are a traitor to your team, Anna said to Perry. How can you side with them? Well, Perry said. For the human part of me, my sister's on their team, so it's easy. I wouldn't describe the angel part of me as taking a side so much as being curious how everything's gonna work out. And maybe being interested in dabbling a little too. Meddling, you know. He smiled. It's complicated. Not funny, Anna said. Now Perry's face changed too, just a little stretched, a little unnatural. What is not funny? He said in a voice that wasn't quite his. Is your misguided attempts at control? How far you're willing to go to have your way? I don't need to explain myself to you, Anna said. Perry held his smile. I had no idea it would be so easy to get under your skin. A few other people coming down the street had stopped a respectful distance away, watching them. Manchu hoped they didn't understand English. He pictured what they were seeing. A priest and a foreigner arguing with a child in the street. What must they think is going on? Clearly you need a reminder of what I'm willing to do to keep you in line, Anna said. Anna made the little boy scream. Manchu braced himself, expecting the kid to make a run for him, but Anna apparently had something else in mind. The boy got down on his knees in the street, arched himself back, and slammed his head onto the cobbled street. The people watching gasped. The boy's head rose. He had a cut across his nose and a gash on his forehead that started bleeding a lot. Play your part, priest, Anna made the boy say. She then made the boy rear his head back to bang his head against the cobblestones again, which was when Manchu dove for him. He caught the boy's head in his hands before it hit, then took the boy in his arms and held him tight. It was an embrace, it was a constraint. He could feel the boy resisting, trying to wrest his hands free. Maybe now she'll make him attack me, he thought. An energy surged through the boy, made him stronger than he should have been. 
His whole little body jerked in Menchu's arms, enough that it seemed possible that the boy would dislocate one of his shoulders. Perry, Menchu called, help me. What do I do? Take his legs, I'll take his arms, hold him and don't let go. The child writhed. Menchu could swear he felt the boy's forearms bend as he strained to get away, as if he'd pushed himself hard enough to break his own bones. But together, Menchu and Perry were too strong to allow that to happen. The boy screamed, his fingers convulsed. Manchu just kept holding him. He glanced up at the people watching. It's okay, he said in Spanish. I know how to help him. The people watching seemed reassured, but they didn't leave. The boy kicked. He had strong legs and almost pushed Perry over, but Perry kept both of them where they were. The boy screamed again. Manchu looked in his eyes. They were still that same pale color. The boy got his right hand free and sure enough raked his nails across Manchu's face. Manchu grabbed that hand by the wrist and brought it back down. Leave this boy alone, Manchu whispered in the child's ear. Anna made the boy scream once again. Manchu could feel the stinging where his nails had cut deep, tracks of wetness where drops of blood were running down his face. Leave this boy, Manchu said again a little louder. The boy's face contorted one more time, and he let out a roar, more like an animal, a monkey, than a lion, than a human. The people watching jumped back. The boy went limp and closed his eyes. Manchu checked the boy's pulse. He's still with us, Perry said. Wake up, Manchu said to the boy in Spanish. The boy turned his head from side to side, eyes still closed. Wake up and open your eyes, Menchu said. The boy did. His eyes were deep brown and full of fear. A drop of blood fell from Menchu's face onto the kids, and Menchu realized how scary he must look. Are you okay? Menchu said in the kindest voice he could muster. The boy nodded. Menchu let him go. Go home, Menchu said. You'll be all right. The boy ran off. Manchu rose to his feet. The spectators in the street were still staring. One of them reached into her pocket and pulled out a handkerchief, walked over, and gave it to Manchu. Keep it, father, she said, for your face. Manchu thanked her. He sat down on the curb to blot his cuts, but really he was waiting for them all to leave. In time, they did. Am I still bleeding? Manchu said to Perry. A little, Perry said. Do you think we led Hana here? No, I think she saw us coming. So it doesn't change anything, Menchu said. I don't think so, Harry said. They began walking back to the hotel. I have to ask what you're really doing here, Menchu said. Back up, Perry said, like I told you. The time for being coy is over, Menchu said. I need some real answers. Perry sighed. There are certain answers I can't give you, he said. There are hierarchies among angels, and I'm not at the top of it. As a fellow bureaucrat, I think you understand that. Understand it and hate it, Menchu said without thinking. I'm getting to that, Perry said. But here's what I can tell you. There are flaws in the world, fatal flaws, and without maintenance, it will come apart. What do you mean, come apart, Manchu said. Harry paused for a second. 
What I mean is, he started. He clasped his hands together and then mimicking the sound of an explosion, spread them apart. The world becomes magic, he said, all magic. The world as you know it can't survive that. So what are we supposed to do, Menchu said. There has been a debate among us about what to do about it. Some say we should let things take their natural course. Others, just a few, say that we should be running around fixing things. Like the boy with his thumb in the dike, Menchu said. Except that sometimes you have to release the pressure to prevent a bigger explosion. You have to let some magic into the world and destroy a part of it, Menchu said. Yeah, Perry said. Which is why I'm breaking protocol by telling you all this. While this debate has been going on, Hana has taken it upon herself to do the maintenance. She's good at it. She's also ruthless. I'm worried that she's going too far. She has broken protocol herself, Menchu said. Yeah, somewhat. About as much as I've just broken it now. She's at a higher pay grade, you might say, and I used to be better about towing the line, but becoming part human and part angel has changed my perspective on things. The angel in me sees the changes in the world as transformative. The human in me sees the destruction. The angel in me admires Hana's diligence, her willingness to work hard and make tough decisions about when and how to release pressure to keep the project going. The human in me is appalled at how many people she kills in the process. He shrugged. So, as you can imagine, I'm torn. This big transformation, Menchu said. How much time do we have? It won't happen tomorrow, if that's what you're asking, Perry said. But magic is a chaotic system, as you probably noticed. And the clock is ticking. The clock is always ticking, isn't it? Menchu said. You can't tell the others what I've told you, Perry said. This is a confession, then? Menchu said. Kind of like that. All right, Menchu said. They reached the hotel and settled in. The car didn't leave until dawn, and it was two days' walk through the jungle. Menchu lay in bed and stared at the ceiling. Somewhere along the shore, someone set off fireworks. Three. Menchu saw Cifuentes waiting for them at the trailhead where the road ended. He had a small pack on his back, his clothes already damp with sweat. The archaeologist extended his hand as Menchu, Sal, and Perry got out of the car, and he nodded to their own small packs. We have a camp halfway to La Lagrima, Cifuentes said in strong English. It will take most of the day to get there, but we have what we need for you to stay there, as long as you don't mind sharing tents. Then it's another half day, much easier than the first. Good. Menchu said, let's go. The road vanished behind them within minutes. On the first three hours of the trail into the rainforest, they kept running into signs of modern human activity. A blue plastic bag, a Coke can, a sock, fragments of the world. Perry's words lingered. It would all become magic. Menchu heard water drip from leaves, watched light colored by the canopy. The same as ever. How much longer would it stay the same? 
They met an older man heading back toward the road with an enormous bundle of sticks on his back, held in place partly by a leather strap that looped around his forehead. It got really hot. They stopped for water all the time, stopped for lunch. By the afternoon, Manchu realized he hadn't seen evidence of any people except themselves for quite a while. The trail was narrow, even prone to disappearing a little. They would never have been able to do this without Cifuentes. You grew up here? Cifuentes said to him. Yes, in the highlands, Manchu said. The conversation distracted him from the end of the world. It's where I began my priesthood, too. Then where are you from? Mexico City, Cifuentes said. Do you come back here often? I haven't been back since the war, Manchu said. It seemed almost unfair to bring up the war. Manchu knew Cifuentes had just been trying to make conversation, but he also knew that once he'd brought it up, he wouldn't need to elaborate on what had happened to his town. My own family is all still in Mexico City, Cifuentes said. My grandfather was a small businessman and did well for himself. We have some means, but a few of my students from the South talk about how there is almost no one left in the towns they grew up in. There's no work, no way of getting by there, and that means that if you leave, there's no reason to go back. Where do they go? Manchu said. Oh, Oaxaca, Mexico City, the United States, other cities in South America, even Europe, <laughs> you name it, I suppose. The worry is more about how to get out, I think, than where it takes you. And that was my experience as well, Manchu said. The priesthood was your way out, Cifuentes said. You could say that. But you felt called, too. Yes, Manchu said. It was my best chance to accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. Which was? To help people, Manchu said. If not to save them. At least to help them when they could not be saved. It had been a long time since Menchu had thought about his past in those terms, let alone explained it to someone else, when it struck him how simple his motives had been then, how narrow the path to priesthood had felt. There were a few other options at the time if he wanted to both escape and help people. Now everything was so much more complicated. It was easy to lose sight of the simple reasons he had joined the clergy amid the church's machinations, the politics he hated, even as he couldn't help but be caught up in them. But he had succeeded, he realized, at one of the things he had set out to do. He had gotten out. He had come a very long way. Was he still helping people? People become clergy for far worse reasons, Cifuente said. Yes, Menchu said. I've met some of them. Cifuentes laughed. Manchu was serious. The rainforest seemed even louder at night than during the day. Monkeys and birds called to each other in the trees above them. Animals scurried in the leaves around them. Cifuentes reminded them to zip the tents up tight and hated a can of beans and some tortillas on a small stove, sliced up ripe avocados that tasted to Manchu like home. The truth is that I wish we could keep going, Cifuentes said. I'm anxious to get back to La Lagrima. There have been some strange happenings around the site, and I'm told you have some experience with this. What kind of things, Sal said. Hard to explain, Cifuentes said. Well, that's a good start, Manchu said. Cifuentes took a breath. At first, I thought I was just pushing the crew too hard, he said. 
We all know each other well, and we gone into the field with a real sense of camaraderie. But as we continued, the crew got more and more irritated with one another. There was a fight. One of the crew went after another with a shovel. These are grad students we're talking about. Nothing like that has ever happened on one of my expeditions before. That's not unnatural, though, Sal said. No, Sifuente said. But the blurring was. What do you mean? Things would, well, blur, Sifuente said. Sometimes it would seem as if time were speeding up or slowing down, though the ground would seem suddenly less solid, the air more solid, as if everything were blurring together. Did this happen to you? Manchu said. It was happening to everyone. Just for a few seconds, here and there, but to everyone. It could be hallucinations, Sal said. I thought the same thing. I considered each stroke and made everyone rest. I had our food checked, our water checked. I tested the air as best I could. But I don't think it was in our heads. The last time it happened to me, I was with Alarcon, my assistant. We were talking about how to decipher some of the glyphs we had found, and at once it seemed to me that she was, well, melting. Her speech slowed, it changed pitch. Her face looked like it was beginning to collapse in on itself. It lasted a few seconds and then stopped. And she looked at me and blinked. What happened? I asked. And she said, I don't know, but it looked to me like you were flying apart. It happened to both of you, Sal said. Yes, Sifuente said. And then I got the message from you. Do you know what's going on at the site now? Contact this buddy, Sifuente said. But Alarcon is worried, and she's never worried. How much longer will it take to get there? Manchu said. Mm, five hours or so. We can start as early as you want, Sal said. As soon as it starts getting light, Sifuentes answered. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi. 
featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>